Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to June's edition of Recharge, the podcast of Battery Materials Review. Thanks for tuning in this month. We've got two featured interviews, Firstly, with Chris Evans, MD of ASX-listed Barimian Limited, shortly to be renamed Marley Lithium. He updates us on his company's project and talks about some of the tripwires for hard rock lithium development. And then we also meet Mark Fuchs, MD of ASX-listed Magnus Energy Technologies, who talks briefly about his company's graphite project before going on to discuss its aspirations as a battery producer. Before we get into that, though, just a quick recap of the month's news from Battery Materials Review. We've relaunched the magazine this month with a bit less news and a bit more value-added content and analysis, so please do check it out via our website at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Our lead focus piece in the June issue is about the impact of the skills shortage on the ability of battery raw materials companies to ramp up production. The sort of forecast demand growth rates we're hearing of for battery materials are of the order of 15-25% to 25% per annum over the medium term. And we compare the situation now with that in base metals and bulk materials in the early noughties. It proved practically impossible for the mining industry to keep up with demand then, and we suggest that it may be difficult for the industry to keep up with those levels of demand growth once again. Moving on, following the Ganfeng Bakanora Lithium Agreement during May, we also discuss the outlook for lithium clay projects. It's an unproved technology, and we're tracking at least 10 other projects relying on unproven technology currently. The takeout multiple that Gan Feng paid was materially below anything else we've seen in lithium, and we wonder if Gan Feng sees the project as simply another option on higher lithium prices. More details in the article. In our final focus piece, we discuss nickel exchange inventories, or more accurately, the substantial fall in nickel exchange inventories. On the surface, it looks like a huge increase in demand for nickel from the battery space, but we analyse the extent of current nickel use in batteries and ring the warning bell. Moving on to news then, and May was again a busy month for news flow with some interesting raw material stories. Key news items were musical chairs in cobalt refineries, with Freeport and Lundin selling theirs to Umicore and Glencore moving to support the first cobalt refinery. We also flagged some new technologies for lithium extraction, one from Albemarle and one from China Inc. Both organisations are staying totally stumm on the details. It's obviously been a big month for rare earth elements, with concerns regarding a US-China trade war leading prices to spike and rare earth equities to outperform. In the midst of all this, producer Linus seems to have resolved its issues with the Malaysian government, which should allow it to keep its processing plant open in that country. In Nickel, it seems that First Quantum is considering reopening Ravensthorpe and BHP Billiton has decided not to sell Nickel West, both moves potentially significant for the Nickel market. In Exploration, we tracked 14 sets of drill results this month, of which the best were from UEX Corporation's West Bear Cobalt Nickel Project in Saskatchewan, Canada, which continues to intercept shallow high-grade cobalt and nickel mineralisation. There were six resource and reserve upgrades, with the standout for us being AVZ Minerals Monono Project, whose resource increased to a massive 400 million tonnes at 1.65% lithium oxide, with additional tin and tantalum byproducts. We discussed the importance of scale over location 
with regards to Monono, Core Lithium's Finis project and Savannah Resources' Mino de Broso project, which both also had resource upgrades in May. Bushveld Minerals also published a resource and reserve upgrade for its Vermetco mine, and we compare and contrast the clear difference in resource grades between Tier 1 and Tier 2 assets in Vanadium. In development news, we highlight infrastructure issues in African lithium projects and discuss the feasibility study for RNC's Dumont Nickel project in Canada. In all of the company's comparisons discussing how the project compares with peers in terms of the magnitude of production, there wasn't one comparing resource grades, and there's a good reason for that, as we discuss in the article. May was a lacklustre month for raising money in the battery materials space. We tracked only 13 deals over a million dollars in all, amounting to just 75.6 million US dollars. For the first time in May, cumulative funds raised in battery materials in 2019 have fallen below 2018 levels. Downstream in the sector, it was also a pretty big month for news. The European Investment Bank announced a 350 million euro loan to help Norfolk fund its new battery plant, which should now help open the doors to further funding. France and Germany announced the establishment of a 6 billion euro battery initiative, although we caution that there's still not enough money being earmarked for raw materials extraction at this time. In the auto space, VW announced plans to invest a billion euros in battery cell production, while Volvo signed 10-year battery supply agreements with CATL and LG Chem. But, as we flagged last month, it's not all great news in Tesla land, with that company having to come back to the market for funds. Tesla's major issue looks to us to be their high fixed cost base, which does mean that it's all going to come down to volume in coming months in our view. If they can hit their targeted volumes, they'll make money. If they can't, then they won't. In tech, there's news of a new EV battery from Samsung SDI, which is 30% more energy efficient than existing batteries. We also have news of a new flexible lithium battery, which could revolutionise the wearables market, and we discuss how a new polymer could benefit NMC batteries. In our trade and demand section this month, we track further falls in global EV sales growth, likely caused by changing subsidy regimes in the US and China. While EV growth rates are declining, it's worth flagging that we're still seeing positive growth rates, even though traditional auto sales in most of these economies are shrinking. Smartphones, a key user of small lithium-ion batteries, are also not looking great, with global sales down 2.7% in the first quarter. There are, however, signs of life in the electronic devices markets. Finally this month, we flagged Japan, which looks like it's on the cusp of moving to a net import position in lithium-ion batteries for the first time. In raw materials, our three-port spodumene concentrate export series was roughly flat in April, but concentrate prices fell again in May. In midstream, there's pressure on lithium hydroxide prices with a slower-than-expected take-up of high-nickel batteries and more converting capacity coming on later in the year. China's cobalt ore imports bounced very strongly in April, hitting their highest level since September 2018. But cobalt and cobalt sulphate prices continued to fall in May. In graphite, Flake prices are under a bit of pressure domestically in China, but not as much as in vanadium, where pentoxide prices collapsed 32% for the month. It wasn't a great month for equities across the board in May, with the S&P Global Index down 5% for the month. The Global X Lithium and Battery ETF was down 11%, and it was a very mixed month for our equity baskets. 
As we already noted, Rare Earths had a cracking month with our basket up 35%. Ucor Rare Metals, which is developing a project in the US, was the biggest gainer, up over 100% for the month. Our cobalt and graphite baskets were also in positive territory on single stock events. In lithium, one would have expected the West Farmers bid for Kidman to hold performance up, but weak Q1 results from lithium producers was more than enough to offset that, and both our brine and hard rock equity baskets finished the month down 6%. Our vanadium basket was down only 3%, buoyed by strong news flow from Bushveld Minerals and Technology Metals Australia. But with vanadium prices remaining weak, there's certainly a strong possibility that it may play catch-up in June. So that's the end of our news roundup for June's issue of Battery Materials Review. You can, of course, read more detail about any of the issues I've raised, and lots that I didn't have time to, in the magazine or on our site at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Last week, we had the opportunity to sit down with management from two very different battery materials developers. First up is Chris Evans, who's managing director of ASX-listed Barumian Limited, which may or may not have been renamed as Marley Lithium by the time you listen to this podcast. Chris is in charge of advancing their Gulamina project in Mali, a task for which he's well-suited given his previous role as COO of Ultura Mining, responsible for delivering that company's mine and processing facility. Hi, and today I'm joined by Chris Evans. He's Managing Director of ASX-listed Barimium Limited. The company's name is shortly going to be changing to Marley Lithium, and the ticker will be MLL. Hi there, Chris. Hello, Matt. Thank you for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, you're welcome. So you're currently developing the Gulamina Lithium project in Mali. Project's got a total resource of just over 103 million tons at 1.3% lithium oxide. And you released a PFS last year. Could you talk us through the key components of that? Yes, certainly. Our resource, as you say, is 103 million tons. And matched with that is a maiden reserve, which we published at the same time as our PFS in July last year. And that's 31 million tons at 1.56% lithium oxide. And so combined between the resource and the reserve, they sit just outside the top five in the world in terms of both size and grade. Our pre-feasibility study showed fantastic economics when we released it. So our net present value for the project was 920 million Australian dollars. And that was an assumed sell price of 680 US dollars per tonne of 6% concentrate. Okay. And what's the CapEx and OPEX looking like? So the CapEx is 199 million US dollars and we'll be producing 360,000 tonnes of 6% concentrate per annum. And the operational cost, the all-in free on-board cost out of the port of Abidjan is around 400 Australian dollars a tonne, which is on par with other contemporary projects that have recently been built, particularly in Western Australia. Okay. And sort of what sort of cost are you looking at for freight? It's about a thousand kilometres to the port of Abidjan from our mine, which sounds like a long way, although it's not particularly unusual to transport bulk goods that far in Mali and Cote d'Ivoire. The transportation makes up about 25% of our overall operating cost. But because labour is relatively cheap in Mali, that brings down the total operating cost to world-class levels that other lithium mines, as I say, in Western Australia currently demonstrate. Okay. and. 
Where do you see the sort of final market for this material? Obviously, you're closer to Europe probably than China. Do you see you shipping into Europe or do you think you're probably going to go to China? We're actually looking at at both markets. We'd like to break the paradigm that's been developed in the lithium, hard rock lithium world at the moment where it's mined in Australia, shipped to China and then converted into either lithium carbonate or hydroxide there. So we'd like to break that. And as you say, we're very close to Europe. So we're looking for European partners. But the problem we have is, or the problem that currently exists, is no conversion capacity in Europe for our product. It currently all has to be converted in China. So there's some European parties interested, but at the moment they would have to convert it in China. So we're also looking at China where there's a huge demand as well. Have you had any sort of interest with regards to offtake partners and initial discussions about that? Yes, we have. We've actually signed a non-binding memorandum of understanding with General Lithium, who are one of the largest lithium converters in China. And they're interested in taking up to 55% of our offtake. So they're currently doing some due diligence on our project and we're in negotiations with them. And in addition to that, we also have a, a letter of intent with Changsha Research Institute, which is a Chinese company that's a subsidiary of China Minmetals, one of the largest mining, state-owned mining companies in China. They're interested in EPC construction of our mine, as well as facilitating offtake and some finance. So again, they're doing some due diligence as we speak. Okay, you're not going to be uh, wanting really for a market for this product. Moving back to the project itself, water is obviously a key issue for hard rock lithium production. What sources of water are you looking at for the mine? We've got a couple of options for water. Pre-feasibility study showed the base case is us pumping water from Lake Selengi, which is one of the major sources of water for the capital Bamako. It's only about 30, well, it's about 30 kilometres from our mine. Since then, we've done a water study and we've shown that because of the nature of the topography around our mine, we can easily capture a lot of rainwater that falls during the wet season. So we, we are now having our base cases establishing dams in the area and they'll hold about eight gigalitres of water, which will provide several years of operating water for the mine. Okay, that's a definitely more environmentally friendly solution. And one assumes then it would be lower cost in terms of operations and potentially capex? That's exactly right. They're relatively easy to build. The ground's amenable to storing the water and it provides the local villages with a source of water, which they currently struggle to find. Okay, brilliant. And just remind me, do you pay any sort of royalty in Mali? We do. We pay... 6% royalty to the government. And also when we establish our mining company, which will be immediately following the issue of our exploitation permit, which we're expecting in the next couple of months, we establish a local company into which we transfer the asset and the Mali government then takes a 10% freehold, free carry of that company. And then they have an option to buy in another 10% at market rates. And then sort of moving forward into the sort of feasibility work and into development. Obviously, one of the key aspects of hard rock projects has been the failure to attain planned recovery rates, particularly in the early stages of production. Can you explain why that's come about as an issue and what you are planning to do to to mitigate against that? Yes, it certainly has been an issue, as you say, for almost every 
uh, startup lithium mine in the last couple of years, or hard rock lithium mine. The main reason that we saw at Altura Mining, which is my previous company, was that there was an overgeneration of fine material. And creating those fines, there's quite a lot of lithium contained in the fines. So when the fine material goes into the cyclones, a lot of it gets thrown out as waste. When it shouldn't be, it should be going into the flotation cells. So we've got a few measures in place to design our plant a little bit differently to prevent the overproduction of fines. And also I've recruited several people, in particular my processing manager, who's previously worked on both the Altura lithium plant and the Galaxy plant. So he's implementing all the lessons he's learned over the last five years working in lithium. Okay. And I mean, it's fair to say that the number of people with actual concrete experience of bringing lithium projects into production is is pretty low at this stage. That's exactly right. There aren't too many out there. So it's extremely important to get those when we can. Okay. You talked earlier about the project CapEx around about 200 million for 360,000 tonnes per annum of concentrate. Obviously, in the current market in terms of financing, that's a lot of money. What would that look like if you went for, for instance, a staged production profile? We have thought about that because other companies do it. So the Mount Marion project, for example, started up and, and in fact still largely is only dense media separation, so they get a coarse product and there's no flotation. And also Tawana, or what was Tawana, is now Alliance, Bald Hill, they also have dense media only. Now, if we were to do that, it would reduce the initial capex, as you suggest, but the recovery isn't there. So we think that the savings that we would make in capex up front probably don't justify a staged a staged startup, and we would still be looking at in excess of $100 million. And I mean, obviously, you've got a, a fairly significant resource anyway, but do you have any exploration upside from current resource levels? Yes, we've got a huge amount of potential upside. Over the area over which we established our reserve, where we put 25 by 25 metre drill spacing in a lot of the areas, we had a 70% conversion rate from resource to reserve. So if the remainder of the resource converts at the same rate when we do some additional drilling, then we'll have a reserve of 70 million tonnes and a mine life of 35 to 40 years. In addition to that, there's mineralised areas and outcrops we know about further to the south that we haven't yet drilled. And the area over which our resource lies represents only 12% of our total permit. So there's a huge opportunity to expand this resource and, and bring us easily into the top five in the world. Okay, great. And obviously, we all know in, in small cap land, at the moment, small cap land anyway, it's very much about catalysts. What are you looking to accomplish with the company over the course of the next year or so? And, and what are your major catalysts as you see them? The first one we've already reached, and that's the granting of our environmental permit from the Mali government. And we got that in March this year. So that makes us the first and the only lithium project that's environmentally permitted in Mali and indeed in all of West Africa. And we've then submitted our exploitation permit application, which is essentially a mining license. And we expect to get that approved in the next two months. So once we get that, we'll be fully permitted and able to commence mining. So that's a, a real catalyst for us. And then in the background, we're completing our definitive feasibility study, which should be complete at the beginning of next year, so Q1 2020. And also we're looking for finance and offtake partners. When all those things come together over the next six to nine months, 
then we'll be in a position to commence construction on the project by mid next year we're targeting. Okay, brilliant. And obviously you, you do a fair amount of speaking to the public, speaking to investors. What's the major factor for you about the company that you don't think that investors get currently? I think it's how large our resource is and how near term we are. So when you look at significant hard rock lithium projects in the world, either those in production or going to get in production in the next couple of years, and then you exclude those that already have their offtake committed, then there's only us and maybe one other of any significant size in the world that can provide hard rock spodumene concentrate. So I don't think people really realise how globally significant we are and how near term we are. And anyone who needs hard rock lithium in the next five years is going to have to look at us, school Amelia, as a real one of the only few options they have. That pretty much states why uh, you feel that investors should buy the company. So that's great. Chris Evans, Managing Director of Berumian, shortly to be Marley Lithium. Thanks very much for your time today. Thank you very much, Matt. Moving on from lithium now and into a totally different segment. Magnus Energy Technologies started out as a graphite developer with its Natu project in Tanzania, but now it's so much more. Like many graphite companies, management decided to move downstream from Flake but they've gone much, much further than the rest of their peers, not stopping at graphite anode, but progressing into cathode tech batteries, and now they're also involved with building gigafactories. Mark Fuchs is the managing director, and we were delighted to have the chance to catch up with him recently. Today, I'm joined by Mark Fuchs, managing director of Magnus Energy Technologies, which hopes to become one of the world's largest manufacturers of lithium-ion battery cells. Mark, welcome to Recharge. Thanks, Matt. Delighted to be joining on on this. So I'll just get right into it. It's a very, very interesting company, so I'll let you tell us all about it. You've got a number of strings to your bow. You're a graphite project developer, but you also have a downstream business with anode and battery technology. And on top of that, you're building backed battery factories as well. Could you give us a brief summary of what you have in each area? We do have a uh, graphite resource in uh, Africa, in uh, southeast Tanzania. It's a very good one. By world standards, it's up with the top. And uh, we have our shovel ready and ready to go on it. And uh, I'm, I'm sure I can talk to you that, uh, more about that. We have a, a partnership with a company in New York called C4V. And together, we've uh, developed anode and cathode IP for a lithium-ion battery. And then finally... We are absolutely interested in, in take going all the way through to battery production. So we've got a plant due to be assembled, a one gigawatt plant in New York, and we have plans in final stage of feasibility for a 15 gigawatt plant in Townsville. Other than that, we've got opportunities emerging around the world. So but we're going to our short-term strategy is our mine in, in Tanzania, battery plant in New York, and I, I, I need to explain that to you how important that is as a one gigawatt plant. It gives us a development scale or commercial scale, if you want to call it, that really validate our entry into this market space. And then the 15 gigawatt one is, you know, a world ranked scale plant by any means. So if we start upstream and uh, you talked about the Natu project in Tanzania, could you sort of give us an update on that in terms of when you expect to sort of be in production, what sort of hurdles? I mean, I know you've probably faced a number of hurdles 
So just give us a quick talk through that. Okay, so it is shovel ready. Uh, We've got all the regulations and the environmental approvals, everything in place. We're only waiting on getting, securing the funding, which we are out there campaigning with three options out of play. So we expect to resolve that fairly shortly. We have the EPC work going ahead and all of that's coming together well. We do have our original plan, our bankable feasibility studies talks about a 240,000 tonne a year plant. That's a big operation and perhaps too big at this point in time for the market, even though we know demand will increase. So we are looking at a stage entry into it. It neatly splits into two 120,000 tonne operations and that's what we'll probably do. If we were to get the go-ahead right now, we probably within two years would be see our, our first uh, production coming through. Okay. And uh, have you got some offtake agreements tied up on that? In fact, because we've got such high grade and high large flake, I think we'll have no problem with actually getting some offtake, particularly for that high end large flake, which our, our the IP around our, our process will ensure that we uh, preserve that, that flake size. The other important thing we'd be able to secure with government in the Tanzania, which for a period of time was considered a high near of high sovereign risk, we've been able to work with the government to stabilise that that mining issues that they had, and we're certainly on track to actually benefit from those as one of the organisations that have worked quite closely and uh, patiently with the government as it tries to set what it believes is a rightful process to not only attract investment but also to secure for its own people a fair share of the reward. That sounds great. So moving sort of a little bit more downstream then, as you said, you have a partnership with C4V for the battery technology. Can you tell us a little bit more about, in probably layman's terms, about the anode and cathode technologies that you've got and what your plans are to expand in that part of the business? Sure. So if I look first to the, the graphite, which I guess was what stimulated us going into this in the first place, we had a very good resource. We believed it was it would make extremely good battery material for the anode. And so we put a lot of research into that, get, getting that one available. But the one big advantage we have, it is such a pure graphite that uh, it doesn't have to be thermally or chemically treated. In most uh, other graphites, they, you do have to use chemical treatment, and one of it is using a very toxic acid and, and, and probably adds $1,000 a tonne to its production cost. So, so we've had to avoid it. We've been able to avoid all that and, and create what we believe is a, a very unique anode. The journey around anodes is, is quite exciting because everybody's looking to how they could improve energy storage within the anode side. And, and one of the things they're looking at is increasing the use of silicon content into that. And we've been working very hard to break through the barriers of that. Um, silicon has its challenges, notably swelling, that can cause a, a lot of problem. And it's quite difficult to get the uniformity of silicon over the graphite. So there's a number of challenges that take us, uh, you know, that are clearly there to be overcome. But for the moment, we believe we've got an anode that will serve its purpose for what we would classify as a generation one battery and certainly be competitive in, the, in its performance and cost. If I go to the cathode, this is C4V's IP, and they've been working very hard on creating what we would like to phrase as sort of game-changing in that we've been able to eliminate both cobalt and nickel 
for a lot of people who are not aware of it, they are you know, key ingredients in the lithium-ion cathode side. But cobalt is very costly. It's only found in a few places around the world, and one of them, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, is in the DRC in Africa, and it's got its challenges about getting it out from an environmental point of view, from a community point of view. I think everybody's quite concerned the way that is secured. And nickel, nickel also has, uh, has seen a significant rise in cost. So there, there's significant cost savings you can avoid using this, but still get the performance, the life, uh, the long life, the weight, and obviously the cost. We are really campaigning against getting the cost down. And that's for us as a key driver in going to cathode technology that does eliminate those high cost items while not eroding performance. How much at sort of full capacity on your battery plants, how much of your own production of graphite would go into your sort of anode battery process? Relatively a small portion, you know, we we would be we still see an, an open market for a substantial amount of our batteries going our graphite going elsewhere, and because of the the large flake has got other markets other than battery production. I mean, you could grind it down to the yeah. fine stage that you need for batteries, but that would be tragic loss to what would be a very <laughs> high grade and high cost product. So I don't have it at my fingertips the actual consumption of a what a fifteen gigawatt a plant would take of it, but I can get those two later on. But suffice to say, we at a 240,000 tonne capacity, and we've, if we only had two sort of 15 gigawatt plants, we would still be oversupplied to those needs and would be out in the market for other, other areas. But really, it's about the use of that, of that high-grade large flake that we'd see going elsewhere. So the sort of technology, uh, we've touched on it, how does it sort of stack up against its competitors in terms of usability? And how far away is it, would you say, from being commercialized in, in EVs and ESS? Okay, so in terms of comparison, you know, the ones you look at is LFP, the NMC, the NCA. Those are the classic chemistry mixes that you're looking at, you know, and they translate into them. What Cable might use, which is the Chinese, what Panasonic use, which is Tesla, and uh, LG Chem, et cetera. We believe we're very competitive in the what we call energy density. So we are able to, our batteries can hold a good voltage. Our capacity is pretty good. It's very comparable to them. Probably sits middle of the road and as, as, as our cell energy. So those are the metrics people use. But in, in perhaps in layman's terms, we believe one hour, if I put it in this term, our energy density, the amount you can cram into one cell is, is right up there with the best. Our, our energy or the voltage fade or what people might think is the cycles you recharge, we've gone over 3,000, so we're very confident of the longevity of that. We do know that, as I say, from that higher energy density, we're, we're about 15% higher compared to market equivalents, so that's a, that's a good position to be in. We've had our battery tested by the New York State Fire Department, and so it's actually got a significantly higher rate testing against the best, so that gives us a lot of comfort in that. The other thing with the re- recycling, it's, it's to do with life. So we believe we've got you know, a battery that really is going to the plus eight to 10 years life now. So all in that is, is, is pretty good. So the other part of the question, sorry, which was yeah. when will it be ready and commercialized for EVs and storage? At the moment, our cells are, are being uh, produced in, in what really is a, really a pilot facility. Whilst we assemble our battery plant in New York, that will be 
essentially be a commercial plant of scale in that could produce a one gigawatt output. To date, those same batteries are being used by an organization called MarTac, which are, have unmanned marine surveillance equipment, so sort of paramilitary, and that's a pretty good test for those things to go in, into. So we, we're watching that closely. And we've the actual offtake for that, for that battery plant, once it's assembled, and we believe, again, we, we, we're just closing on, on, on funds now, but once we get that in place, it's, it'll be about 12 months and we'll be in an operation. And once that's ready, we've got three years of that one gigawatt already offtake, fully taken. Right. You already got full offtake on the yes. one gigawatt. If you then switch to the um, the Australian scene, you know, I think, well, you're coming out into summer now, so I'm, so I'm sure you're pretty pleased about that, but Australia is blessed with you know, lots of sun. Because of that, we've gone down to a very strong government incentivized opportunity for people to put photovoltaic cells, uh, you know, on their roof, solar panels. And so we've got an enormous amount of generation of, of re- renewable energy, but very little storage. So we see our battery plant in Townsville, Queensland, really addressing the domestic demand for storage. And that storage, both at the residential, at microgrid level, which a lot of the big providers are looking at, which is, uh, again, people don't understand what it is, rather than each individual having their own power pack or storage pack, which it would be uh, you know, at the end of a street or a number of streets. And through smart metering, you'll share your power consumption and your and your and your shower and your your power uh, creation and get the benefit of excess and pay for 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 underperforming so you know it's it's a great way to do it also australia will use it to actually to in a large in a large scale at their power current plants to stabilize energy stabilize the whole electricity network which has been quite critical to do Okay, so that's fascinating. So you're probably not looking at electric vehicles for the Australian plants. And then if you wanted to push into EVs going forward, it would be another plant sort of elsewhere in the world. We'll certainly exceed our domestic need at a 15 gigawatt plant. We weigh over what the domestic need is. So we are looking at opportunities, mainly in that that Southeast Asia developing market. And that will come with opportunities for both EV and storage. I describe EV as a sexy end. Everybody wants to go there, but there's a very strong demand for storage, and uh, people getting stable electricity is a is a game changer for them for a quality of life and uh, for a growth in an economy. But there are a couple of emerging uh, countries in Southeast Asia that are really want to move into a at least helping their pollution through through buses that are EV or you know or at least smaller transportation within the urban area, etc. So I think we will fill all of those opportunities. Okay, that's great. Thanks. That's a really interesting answer. So obviously in battery technology at the moment, much of the excitement is around the 811 battery and how fast it can be developed by battery manufacturers and and in fact, how fast it is likely to be adopted by the EV industry. Do you have any views on that? Obviously, that will be a, a sort of key competitor to your product when it launches. If I just say this, that look, everybody's on a journey to get better batteries. I mean, ultimately, people would like to think they end up as a solid state battery, which eliminates a lot of the electrolyte or liquid electrolyte and makes it for a safer battery, et cetera, and, has, and, and high performance in terms of energy density, et cetera. But the 811 battery is being tested. I put it to our 
scientific minds in, in our group. And, you know, their, their comment back, which, you know, I must admit I, I endorsed because I heard exactly from this when I attended the Benchmark Minerals World Tour through USA and Canada. The key thing for that is how they can handle the materials. You know, any minute ingress of, uh, of, of water or moisture or um, impurities is going to sort of really damage that. So it's not an easy one to produce, and I still think there's a journey to go. But I, again, I just want to say that there will be competitors to that, and we'll think we'll – way we've got our partnership with C4V, we do expect to have created Generation 2 and go on as, as our ultimately to solid state in an evolution of advancement whilst we've got an organization like that that sits in a university environment that's uh, got uh, significant funding from the U.S. government uh, as a center of excellence. We've, we've got a perfect opportunity there. And to, to assist them in that, we've got uh, alongside them, you know, a one gigawatt play park for them <laughs> to test these at commercial scale. So, I, you know, I don't know if there's any place in the world that would have that unique combination of a, a research center of excellence and, that, you know, that, that ability to test it commercially. At commercial scale, rather. You know. Okay, okay. And we've touched on the battery factories that you've got under development in New York and Australia. I also gather that you've been looking into an earlier stage in Europe and possibly also one in India. Could you tell us a little bit more about them, their, their sort of stage of development, where you're at, and sort of what your plans are going forward? Sure. Well, look, let's talk about Europe. Europe is really pushing for green or transfer to uh, renewable energy in all forms. And, and they've sort of mandated uh, moves and then governments have been pressing the, putting pressure on, on the OEMs to actually move to that uh, quite quickly. For us to get into that market, I don't say we're too late for it, but, but certainly for those who want to meet their targets by, say, uh, 2025, if you look at, say, a Volkswagen with 30% of its production EV by 2025, and, they, and you know, you're six years away from that, they want the commercial battery in their hand right now to be able to actually confidently work to work towards that. So we know we've got to look for markets within that sector quite carefully. But again, because everybody's working on, on standard forms of cell or prismatic, either cylindrical or prismatic, we'll find a place. And so we, we maintain a, a good contact into that marketplace. In the broader parts of Europe, like uh, there's opportunities. Certainly, places like Turkey have, have expressed an interest, and we've had some conversations with them. If I look to India, look, you'd be silly not to try and engage in India uh, with one of the largest populations in the world, with a strongly growing economy, with a, a now re-elected uh, government with strong mandate to actually make things happen, with who's got a strong agenda, you know about renewables, electricity for everybody. So we see storage and EV being a huge part. They are very clear about what they want. They want it made in India for India. So, you know, if you go to go knock on their door, you need to be able to demonstrate you've got the credentials and the ability to put a plant in their country to have them have a significant participation in the ownership of it and obviously to work with them to where they can actually do this. And we've, we've had a number of the discussions with him. Again, you know, waiting for the election phase to pass through. It's gone through now. We expect to engage with them again in the, in the third quarter. And, and that's, that's fine with our time. So but just I'll tell you one thing about the Towns one, because I think it is worth for your listeners to hear about this. What we've done, because we, have at, we, we aspire to actually put gigaplants all over the place, 
We've purposely designed this plant to be relocatable anywhere. I don't mean pick up the plant and move it, but I mean we've got a design that we can we can use anywhere. So, so like a modularized design? It's modularized in five gigawatt components and it can be put anywhere. Other than the uniqueness of the location and uh, the supply of utilities, etc., power, gas, and water, then we're fine. We can do it anyway. Just sort of coming back to the battery plant, what are the major sort of cost inputs into the battery plant apart from raw materials? There's not a lot apart from raw materials. Raw materials take up 80% of the cost, you know, and, and that's that's the damage thing. So the trick to actually be successful in operating a, a battery plant is your yield. You can't afford to waste, uh, you know, too many batteries because you really find out your failures unfortunately at the end of it when it comes off the end of the run and you're starting it through the the, the stress testing of that battery that you actually find out whether it fails or, or, or meets its uh, spec criteria you know most uh, battery plants unfortunately are, are really struggling with yield and that that goes for the ones who are best in the business you know so the battery plant in tesla has had enormous challenges ramping up it's a big thing to get ramp up like that our focus therefore that we bring to it and and we bring it from really from the mining sector who had a lot to do with large plants operating at at high levels of recovery you know sustainable production levels with high volume we believe we can um, add a lot of that to our contribution to ensuring we get good yield that's the trick to to the game but labor is less than four percent i think or three percent it's very low it all comes down to that materials and power, is power a significant part? Not really. A 15 gigawatt plant, if you did it all, it's, uh, yeah, the one in towns where we're looking at about 35 megawatt power, but we supplement that with gas. So so there's a combination of power from, you know, electricity, about 35 gigawatt, and the, I mean, a, a megawatt, and then we've got, we got gas. So they're not that thirsty. Once you got, once you're into the, um, uh, you've got a stock of batteries, the way the, the forming and aging process works, which is really about, the, the, as I said, the testing at the end of the, of the battery production, you are able to reuse energy that's uh, once you expel it out of the, 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 the tested batteries into the new ones. And so you go on. So, the, you know, you, you work around it. But it's not a, you know, again, it re- represents a small percentage of the overall operating costs of a plant. Fascinating. Thank you very much indeed for that insight. So sort of moving a little bit outwards, with so many sort of business units, you're quite a difficult company, I think, for investors to value. Given the direction of our conversation, I feel that you're much more a technology company than a mining company. Would you agree on that? Absolutely. Yes, we would. And sort of coming back to the stock price performance, the stock's are a long way off its highs, doesn't really seem to be valuing the downstream businesses. If you were an investor looking at the company, how would you go about valuing it? Well, you know, if you look at our near-term opportunities, and all of them require funding. So funding is going to be the trigger to get things going. So if I was an investor, I'd have my ears out, I mean, and listening quite sharply when I hear the first announcement of funding coming through, you know, secured funding, because that that opens it up. But if I look at the, the, the graphite plant, the good thing about it is, Whilst most uh, graphite producers are having to sell it at really quite depressed prices in the marketplace uh, as a commodity graphite, because of the high-grade 
large flake, we've got a product basket of prices that we call it that is you know five times above that price. So certainly we think it's got strong financial credentials and and starting a mine like that, I just said would advise any advisor and be careful not to look at it as you look at any other graphite mine that might just be just be in that low end of commodity grade graphite you know into the market. In terms of seeing us as a technology company and saying, well, what's going to make you different? And then and there's a new player. How can you offer us an advantage? Well, the way I say it is, is this. First of all, we've partnered with the right organizations. I think I think we've got a good combination of skill sets and innovation that have brought together a, a new form of battery that will be a challenge to the current incumbents in the marketplace. Everybody's searching for better chemistry. So we think it's an ongoing journey. But we've got the vehicle from the from the scientific and technological capability in our in both organisations to advance that. So that's that that got in terms of the actual our entry into the marketplace. You know, I was always schooled when I was with uh, Rio Tinto, particularly, and uh, also with BHP Engineering or BHP rather, the company. You know, I saw that uh, they had a real strong position about bringing new technology into their company. If you were going to do that, you could not just uh, rely on the results of a pilot plant to go forward into commercial. You needed to build a, de- a development plant, which they mean that by that they mean is at commercial scale. So what we've got, we've secured in New York, is a one gigawatt plant, which will be at commercial scale. And I reckon that will be the litmus test to anybody, let's say any nervous investor who might want to hang hang around to see the the outcome of that, because that will generally, I think, secure. The credentials. At the same time, we will have, have well advanced our, our in sort of parallel our our feasibility and getting ready to move into execution for our Townsville plant. So you know it, it's it's very much a measured approach to the short term execution of strategy. That's very interesting, Mark Fuchs, managing director of Magnus Energy Technologies. Thanks very much for your time today. Thank you, it's a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of our roundup for June. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'll be back next month. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.